At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. Well, we are in Lamentations 5. We are closing the series today. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give you thanks for Kids Camp, for the opportunity to pour into them, to pour love and faith in Jesus and strength for life. Father, call them all to yourself, all of them. I pray you bless all the parents here. I pray they would know that they are sufficient for this difficult task of parenting, raising up their children, our children, and the instruction and the admonition of the Lord. And we know that we are sufficient because our sufficiency comes from you. So help us, Lord. Make us confident in you. Make us humble. And now, Lord, as we close this series, I ask that you may have big things for each one of us. What do you have, Lord? May each one of us be asking you that. I pray you remove all distractions. I pray you give me a strong voice. Spirit of God, come be our teacher. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Lamentations 5, verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. The word of the Lord. There's a gripping story that caught international headlines of 33 miners from Chile who back in 2010 were trapped in a mine that collapsed half a mile underground. Now just try to imagine if you are buried alive some 165 stories below the surface. Just think of what you might feel. Shock, trapped, hopeless, utterly powerless, weak, anxious, I mean on and on. At first, they were so overwhelmed that they considered suicide. One of the miners um, said, revealed that he had said to a friend, if we're going to continue suffering, it would be better for all of us to go to the shelter, start an engine, and with the carbon monoxide, just let ourselves go. We're going to die anyway. By day 16, start for food, they realized that they would have to eat the others that died first. I mean, this situation is insane. Just think of the anguish. Now, of course, corporations and governments from around the world came together on a rescue mission, but it took a total of 69 days, 69 days to get them out of that collapsed mine. Just think of this, 69 days. By day 16, they're already starving, having suicidal and cannibalistic thoughts. So what got them through the other 53 days yet to come. Well, everything changed on day 17. On day 17, a drill came punching through the ceiling. One of the miners said, I was so weak, I couldn't even stand. And then all of a sudden, I found myself jumping for joy. It was like celebrating New Year's Eve or having a newborn child. Now, it would take another 52 days to get them out, 
But as soon as that drill made contact, all suicidal and cannibalistic thoughts disappeared into the dust because of hope. Hope is that powerful. Hope is the belief that there is yet a bright future ahead. Lamentations is written from a perspective similar to the miners on day 16. We've read about it throughout. Even last week, chapter 418, our end drew near. Our days were numbered for our end had come. But then we see some rays of hope like the miners on day 17, even though they still had 20, 52 more days in the darkness. Lamentations 4, 22, the punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He, God, will keep you in exile no longer. So today, as we finish the series, as we finish the book, we're gonna find both perspectives, mostly day 16, but also some rays of hope, even though the entire book, if you look there with me, ends in verse 22 with these words, chapter five, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly, angering, uh, exceedingly angry with us. There is great wisdom, instruction, and comfort for us in the fact that this book does not have a Hollywood ending. In our own lives, when things get hard, we can get stuck on day 16. Now, what, what may have come your way might have been an affair, a divorce, a significant job loss. And I say significant because there's some jobs you lose and you're like, thank you, you know? <laughs> but it may be a significant job loss. It may be a dream or hope that has never come to fruition. And in that dark place, it's like when a major ocean wave comes in and knocks a child off her, her feet so that she tumbles underwater a couple of times and loses all sense of orientation. And in that place, our appetite for God, our desire for God can vanish. Anger, sadness, confusion can garble our connection to God, even though he alone is the one that can forge our path forward. We said the first week of the series that a lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And nowhere is that more true than in chapter five. This is a prayer. It's a prayer of lament. What's the author lamenting? Their disgrace, their enslavement, their estrangement. Let's take those one at a time. First, we lament our disgrace. Look at verse one again. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. You know, a prayer in pain that leads to trust. I want you to see the presence of prayer grow in the midst of devastation. Throughout the poem, we've been hearing um, all these long speeches of complaint, of disbelief. Uh, the poet and Lady Zion, they've been taking turns just talking to anyone who will listen about their plight. By the way, if you're just joining us today for the first time, we're in Lamentations, and this is uh, after the year 587 BC, when God sent a wicked nation, Babylon, to destroy Jerusalem, uh, his own people, Judah, because of their centuries of unfaithfulness. So that's where we are. It's a dark chapter in Israel's history. And so here, from this place of loss and pain, the, the author of this poem 
has been talking to anyone who will listen about their plight. Some may call it rants. And sometimes those, those long speeches are interrupted by bits and pieces of prayer. So if you want to see there with me, look at chapter one. So the, the complaint begins. The, 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 the speech begins, but then in verse nine, we read, oh Lord, behold my affliction for the enemy has triumphed. That's a prayer. He keeps going. Verse 11, look, oh Lord, and see, for I am despised. He goes on a bit more with his outburst. Verse 20, look, oh Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. So there's a few, right? Three different verses. There's prayer in uh, the first chapter. Then in chapter two, most of the chapter, again, is the outburst, the complaint, the confusion. But then in chapter two, verse 20, he says, look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus? And here the prayer goes on a little bit longer. Then chapter three, again, most of the chapter, they're just talking to anyone who will listen, bringing this complaint. But at the end of the chapter, Chapter, verse 55, we have a prayer again. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. And again, the prayer goes on for a bit longer. Then in chapter four, there's no prayer. It's just the outburst, the the confusion, the pain. But then chapter five, all of chapter five is a prayer. You see? So we have prayer increasing. And I think this is so good for us because the conditions haven't changed. Judah still lies desolate. The perspective of the author hasn't changed, not fully, but there's something that has changed or is changing. And that is that more of his speech more of his words are being directed to God. That's so good because I've seen that in some of my interactions with people, I see that when our circumstances are good, we want to talk to God. When our circumstances are opaque, we have a hard time finding the energy, the desire to talk to God. But Lamentations is here as a witness to us that we should direct, when we are in pain, we should direct more and more of our words to God. Bring your pain to God. Do not wait for the pain to be gone. Do not treat your pain with pills or alcohol or other ways of escape. No, bring your prayer of pain to God. He can handle it. And in that place, you will see your trust grow. Verse one, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. This is chapter five. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. What the poet is describing is the effects on Israel's citizens and survivors of a total political, social, economic, and religious breakdown. In verse two, he says, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers. Dignity for Israel came in the fact that they were in covenant relationship with the creator of all things, the God of the universe. 
And as part of that covenant relationship, he had given the land of Canaan to them as their inheritance. But because of covenant disobedience, that land had now been turned over to strangers, to a nation that did not know Israel's God. Now they had it in possession. Israel forfeited it. The law anticipated this. This is what would happen because of disobedience. And so verse three says, we have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. The family unit, the core of society has broken down. And they now, Israel, the people of God have become the very people that they failed to protect. Orphans, widows, fatherless, sojourners. Time and again, God had told them, pleaded with them to please Take care of those who, were, uh, who needed uh, protection, who were oppressed, who were most vulnerable. Here's just one such appeal from God through Jeremiah, who for 40 years tried to turn Jerusalem, Israel, back to God. This is from Jeremiah 22. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become desolate. Well, again and again, God had warned them, told them, do no wrong, no violence to the sojourner, to the fatherless, to the widow. But they did not heed God's word. And so now they have become the orphans, the fatherless, the widows. And water is expensive. Bread, food is expensive. They're having to go to nations that had betrayed them in the past just to try to get by. There are nations today that know what it's like to live under occupation, which is what Israel is at this time in their history under the thumb of Babylon. They know of the struggle for water supplies and heating fuel, of increased and inflated prices for basic foods, uh, of, the, of the constant harassment of army checkpoints and of difficult and dangerous travel and the ubiquitous presence of the military. For years, Israel had been enslaved by Egypt, but then God delivered them and for over 800 years, they were free and God prospered them. But now they are slaves again. So let's keep reading. We lament our enslavement. Verse eight, slaves rule over us. I mean, the irony. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate. The young men, their music, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us for we have sinned. So the chronicle continues of what it looks like, what it feels like when 
all the institutions that make human life flourish dissolve, collapse. He says, slaves rule over us. You know, probably the lowest ranking class of soldiers were sent to the land of Judah to occupy it. Then he says, women are being raped. Now this practice, ancient and modern, has always been one of the most evil features of warfare domination. Rape is an assault, not only on a woman's dignity, purity, and body, but also on the men who should have been able to protect their wives and daughters and mothers and could not. Rape was also a strategy to wipe out the bloodlines. He says, princes are hung up by their hands. Now, this may refer to torture or execution or the graphic display of corpses or all of the above. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are doing the work that donkeys used to do, grinding at the mill. The old men have left the city gate. The city gate was the place where legal matters took place, where you took your grievances uh, to have the elders of the city resolve them for you and have justice restored to you. All of that is gone. Now, this past week, the Supreme Court uh, issued an, a unanimous ruling that college athletes are entitled to some compensation from, by the double, uh, NCAA. Um, there are many stakeholders that make millions through college sports except the athletes. Now, whatever you think of that ruling, my point is that it's a wonderful thing when there is a justice system, a legal system that seeks to uphold justice. Not perfectly, but just imagine if all legal and political and social and economic and religious institutions in our land broke down. I mean, just think of the massive disruptions that COVID has brought. And even so, most of these institutions remained intact for the last 15 months. Israel is again in a place of slavery. There is no joy, no music, no crown. We lament our estrangement. Verse 17. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. And so we come to the end of the book. Their hearts are heavy. Their eyes are dim. Mount Zion. Remember, Zion is the name for Jerusalem. Not just any name but their name in majesty. Well, Mount Zion lies desolate. We don't see children playing on the streets or artisans baking and selling their breads or the elders ruling at the city gate or husband and wife dancing or sweetly conversing as the sun sets over the city. No, we see unclean animals, jackals prowling over the city. The temple, God's address on earth, Lies is burning down. It's burned to the ground. There is physical, national, emotional, theological pain. And from this moment where God's dwelling on earth is burned to the ground, the prayer reaches up to the throne of God in heaven. Look at verse 19. But you, O Lord, reign forever. 
Your throne endures to all generations. Now remember day 17 for the miners when everything changed? When that drill came punching through the ceiling and all suicidal and cannibalistic thoughts went to the dust. Remember that? That's what verse 19 is for this book. How can this be? How can anyone in Israel make this kind of confession? Because remember, when a, when a conquering nation came to a nation to be conquered, they would go straight to their temple and desecrate it and even sometimes bring statues from, of their own gods and bring them into that temple. It was a symbol of sub, subjugation, of conquest. It was their saying, our gods have defeated your gods. And so how can they now, how can the author say, but you, Lord? I mean, remember, the temple is raised to the ground. They've completely lost the land. How can the author say, but you, O Lord, reign forever? Your throne endures to all generations. How can that be? Because he knows that Babylon's hammer is held in God's hand. He knows this. I mean, this book, we have been reading it, how he's able to say things that we sometimes are not able to say. He says, he, speaking of God, he brought down fire on us. He sent this nation. He knows God is the one who did this. Listen, God destroyed his own temple. That's what he knows. God did it again at the time of Jesus, 40 years after Jesus' death. Destroy the second temple. The hammer at that time was who? Rome. First temple brought down through Babylon. Second temple through Rome. God did it. Now why? Why would God do that? Why, why would God destroy his own temple? You just don't hear of this being done anywhere else. Why would he do that? Because who would do this? Only a God who does not need a temple. Only the creator of the universe who does not need anything. I mean, Solomon, when he built the first temple, declared as much in his prayer of dedication in 1 Kings 8. He says, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Then he says, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, much less this house I have built. What Solomon was saying is the whole earth can't even contain God. How could this little house that I've built contain you? And so when the temple became the hotbed of covenant-breaking idolatry, God finally said, enough. But verse 19 is the drill of hope. And it comes from Israel's memory, from their history with God, from the fact that they know the character of God. Their conditions have not changed. There is no Hollywood ending in this book. The end of exile is still many years off. Not at all certain for them from their vantage point. Verse 20 speaks of this uncertainty. They say, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Oh, but there is such great power in being able to look at jackals prowling, the temple burning, survivors sobbing, and still be able to affirm, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. I mean, look at the final appeal of the book in verse 21. He says, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. 
renew our days as of old. Before in the poem, we've seen a different kind of appeal. We've seen them say again and again, look and see, look and see, O Lord, look and see my affliction. Look and see our disgrace. Before we've read throughout the, the, the poem, God, see us, see us, see us. But now the appeal is totally different. They're not asking for God to see them. They're asking for God to make them return to him. Do you see the difference? This is amazing. They're not saying anymore, God, see us, see us, see us. We're dying over here. No, they're saying, Lord, cause us to see you. This is so powerful. They say, restore us. This is the final appeal of the book. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. They're not saying, restore us by kicking out the Babylonians. Restore us by rebuilding the temple. Restore us by ending our suffering. All good things. It's just that that's not the path to restoration. The path is restore us to yourself. Church, lament brings us back to God. Lament brings us back to God. This right here, this is the struggle of the Christian life every day for us to have the spiritual sensitivity, this, the spiritual sight to be able to see the many ways that each day we drift away from God and then having seen them, beg him to bring us back to himself by the love of Jesus. That's it. That's what you and I will be doing until we die. And so I want to leave you with four insights from this blood-soaked book. Oh, because we want to learn. There is so much gold here. We don't want to just leave this book and move on. So here's four things. First, whenever you're brought low by loss, whatever its source, bring it to your God. Whenever you're brought low by loss, whatever its source, bring it to your God. I've been so helped by the gut-wrenching, clear-eyed, tear-filled honesty of lamentations, haven't you? Man, this poem just goes again and again and again over pain. It just brings up pain again and again. And then it seems to turn the corner and you're like, oh, the poet is feeling better. Lady Zion is feeling better. They're talking even about the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Good. They're doing better. They're moving on only to plunge right back into darkness, into even deeper lows. But that is the nature of grief, isn't it? That is the nature of loss, of bewilderment. I mean, we saw it with the miners, right? Day 16, they're having like the worst thoughts. Day 17 comes, a ray of hope, only to be followed by another 52 days of darkness. And my concern for you, my church, is that we stop. We stop. We stop bringing our pain to God. And the result is that we don't grow in trust of our God. Instead, what happens is we get stuck in our pain. 
And we get stuck with the messaging of pain. My situation is not gonna get better. It won't improve. God doesn't see me. He doesn't remember me. He won't answer me. Listen, from Lamentations, I exhort you, rebel. Rebel. Rebel against that kind of internal thought. Protest. Your prayer to God in pain is your protest. Whatever the source of your low, whatever brought you low, whether it was your own sin or someone else's sin or simply doing good, sometimes we suffer by doing good or simply by being a citizen of this fallen world, whatever the source that brought you low, wear out your father in heaven until he hears you, until you sense that trust begin to rise in you. Take your sorrow to your savior. Okay, so whenever you're brought low by loss, whatever the source, bring it to your God. Number two, today, when you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. When you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. Listen, it's impossible to spend a few days, a few weeks in lamentations and not be sobered up by the seriousness of sin. At this time in their history, Judah had no confusion as to why they were bearing the wrath of God so intensely. We see confessions. We read confessions to this end throughout the poem. Like in chapter one, verse five, the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Chapter five, verse seven, our fathers sinned and are no more and we bear their iniquities. Chapter five, 16, woe to us for we have sinned. As Christians, we know that Jesus took the punishment of our iniquities and it is finished. We will never bear the wrath of God and that is true and it is glorious and it is eternal. But there is such a thing as hardening our heart. And we should beg our God that that may never happen to us. Why do you think that we hear all these stories about people who at one point were strong Christians and even pastors and even elders in their church, and then they walked away from the faith? What happened? What happened? What happens is that the heart can get hardened. And they minimized sin or ignored it, denied it, justified it, rationalized it so that there comes a point when they do not see it anymore and they stop repenting. I've seen this and it scared me to death. Because I know that, that can happen to me. That can happen to any of us. For centuries, God had warned his people through the prophets. And then at last, he sends Jeremiah's one last attempt, who for 40 years came to them, warning them, trying to bring them back. But their hearts were hard. They did not hear. And God's wrath came. Lamentation stands as a monument to the consequences of a hardened heart at the national level. Listen, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. As Christians, God's discipline is never punitive, but it is always purifying. He is making us holy 
And so we need to remember that exhortation from Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so if you're hardening your heart to God and maybe that's happening to you, how do you know that's happening? Because you're unresponsive to his word. And so if you're hardening your heart, do not dare say, I'm okay, Jesus paid it all. No, confess your sin, turn, turn, turn from your wicked ways that the blood of Christ may cleanse you from every sin. And oh, he does, he always does. So today, when you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. Next, refuse to allow your circumstances or surrounding values to shape your view of God. Do not let that happen. When Jerusalem is devastated and the temple is burned and the survivors are sobbing and water and food are expensive, the poet strains his pen and his vocal cords to declare in verse 19, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Amazing. What he's saying is we sinned. Your wrath came, but you endure forever forever. Your steadfast love never ceases. We can't feel it right now. We can't see it right now, but we know it's coming because it's your character. It's who you are. And it's based on that covenant love of God that he's able to make the final appeal of the book. Restore us yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Remember, remember that when things get hard, we can get stuck on day 16, that, that day for the miners when they had those suicidal and cannibalistic thoughts. Whatever brings you low, it may be an affair, a divorce. It may be a significant loss of some, some sort. It may be a dream or hope that has never come to fruition. And in that dark place, right? It's like a wave that comes in and knocks us off our feet and we tumble underwater a few times. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever felt there that you're losing all sense of orientation? You don't know what's up or what's down. Or maybe what's making you lose your sense of orientation is the values around you. So many things picked up speed during the pandemic. Alcohol, divorce, the gender fluid push, pornography, shopping, and we can be swimming in that water and be like, oh, this is just a lazy river. I'm just, I'm just enjoying the breeze when it's a rip current that's pulling you farther and farther away from shore, farther and farther away from God. Listen, take a stand for your faith. Anger, sadness, confusion, hopelessness can garble our connection to God, even though he alone, he alone is the one who can forge our path forward. He's the only one. And so take a stand. Doesn't matter what's happening around you. Doesn't matter how, how difficult things get for you at the hard emotional level. Doesn't matter what our culture is saying. You must stand on God's word and say, you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. If you're the last person who believes in Jesus Christ on this earth, so be it. But do not let anything around you shape your view of God, only God's word. And then finally, 
do not expect a Hollywood ending on this fallen earth. Don't expect a Hollywood ending on this fallen planet. Lamentations ends. Look again at how it ends. Look at verse 22. These are the final words. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. No sugar coating. Jerusalem is still desolate. Jackals are still prowling on the streets. We will go through many long winters. And it's not just because we live in Michigan. We will go through many long seasons of suffering. And God will seem dim. And dark clouds will gather and surround you. Now you might object and say, John, why so grim? It's the summer, man. Fourth of July is coming. We are a freed, happy people. I'm firing up the grill. Yeah, do all that. But remember that we are culturally primed for an everything is awesome mindset. And then real life hits. And then what? See, I'm grateful that this book ends as it does because between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, there is Holy Saturday when Jesus lay in the tomb. And in many real ways, that's where we live. That's where we live. Yes, Jesus has resurrected, but we haven't. Yes, we live in the power of his resurrection, but our resurrection is still future and it won't come on this side of death. We live on day 17 for the miners when the drill punched through, but there were still 52 more days of darkness. That's where we live. So don't expect a Hollywood ending while this earth is fallen. But in the ending of Lamentations, we find the gospel. We find the glorious gospel in that verse. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Because we know how this story continues. No, he did not utterly reject him. Yes, they had to bear his wrath. But there's another chapter. Because here's the thing. Who? Who was utterly rejected for us? Christ. Who received the exceeding wrath of God that should have come to us? Christ. So church, cheer up. Cheer up. Our God is making all things new. Revelation 21 verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning. Morning. Good morning. Forget good morning. Be gone. Morning. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So cheer up, dear church.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for this journey through these difficult, gut-wrenching, clear-eyed, tear-filled pages of Scripture. Father, I pray that you may have done surgery on so many hearts and minds here. Lord, you alone know the sorrow that a heart carries. Words cannot express it. Oh, we try. Oh, the poet was so helpful to us. He did so well. And yet we just catch glimpses of the wreck, of the agony, of the anguish. Thank you, God. Thank you for the many mountains and valleys and places that you take us in Scripture to show us who you are and who we are and what the way of life is. Father, I pray that we would be strong. I pray that you would make us strong before you through this book. Make us strong before you. Make us vulnerable before you, God. I pray that no one here would stop bringing their pain to you and wrestling with you until trust is born and strengthened. Help us, dear God. Help us. Lord, I pray for anyone who may be here whose heart is hard or hardening. They may not even know it. They may be deceived, so dull that they cannot see their sin and they cannot repent before you. Father, I pray that your loving kindness would draw them near as you've done so many times for me. But Father, I pray that by any means you would bring them to yourself that they may not perish. Father, I pray that we would refuse to allow our circumstances, however difficult, however glorious, or the values that surround us shape our view of you. No, God. I pray that if we be the last one standing with firm faith in Jesus Christ, so be it. But let us stand on your word, on your truth, on your grace. We love you. We trust you. We thank you that we can come to you as we are. That we don't have to clean ourselves up. No, you cleanse us up. You clean us up. Thank you, God, for doing that by the blood of our Savior, who was rejected, who bore your exceeding wrath that we might be brought back to you. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.